Amen. Good morning. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here, and today we're going to be in the book of Luke, chapter 10. So if you have a copy of the Bible, you can turn your way to Luke, chapter 10. If it's digital, you can tap your way to Luke, chapter 10, but I'd love for you to be following along with us from the words of Scripture to kind of see what Jesus is talking about and understand it a little bit more uh, with us. So this past week... Myself and some of the other guys here at Hope Church got to go to a meeting uh, for the International Mission Board. If you're not sure who that is, the churches that we partner with at Hope Church collectively give towards mission work that no individual church could do very well on their own. And we have two. We have the North American Mission Board and the International Mission Board. And the North American Mission Board serves the United States and Canada as you might understand. Uh, and the International Mission Board just takes care of whatever else is out there. You know, you got the U.S. and Canada, and then everything else. Doesn't seem like an even split, but that's how they do it. So the International Mission Board had a meeting uh, this past week, and we got to go and see what was happening. We got to pray with several people that were being sent Now, they did a lot of business while we were there, but one of the things they did was to send... 62 people, and here I want to use the right language, they were appointed as lifetime missionaries. So I don't know what your categories are for the word missionary. These people are going as lifetime missionaries, planting their lives full-time in global locations. They're being sent all around the world. And it was incredible to see. We were very impacted by these people and their commitment. And here's the number that they shared. Now, this organization's job is to send those people, train them, identify them, train them, send them to very strategic places where we can impact what we term lostness or people that don't know the Lord. And here's their number. Based on their working of global populations, their understanding of those populations and what they believe and don't, Of the 8 plus billion people in the world, you have people born every day, you have people who die every day, and the International Mission Board's number they came up with is that 173,451 people die every day without Christ. Now there are way more people than that that die Every day. But 173,451 people die today and yesterday and tomorrow without Christ. That's what the International Mission Board exists to change. That's what the church that Christ instituted exists to change. We glorify God. We love the Lord. We never would put that above our connection with the Lord. But if you're connected to the Lord, you have the Lord's heart. And the Lord's heart is that all would come to know the love that He has for us through Jesus Christ. The International Mission Board exists to change that. And we gave, I don't know if you were here around Christmas, but around Christmas we talked a lot about the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. When we collected that offering, 100% of that offering went directly to people like and those 62 people that got sent. 
By God's grace, they're sending more than just those 62. They're doing this regularly where they have these meetings and they're sending out people into the world. But as we walked around and just interacted with these people, it was very strange how not strange they were. And here's what I mean by that. If you say that you're going to have somebody that's going to go and be fully supported to take the gospel to strategic locations around the world for the rest of their lives, you have maybe two sort of opposed but extreme reactions to those people. I think of those people and assume they're superheroes. Assume that they are way better people. And they probably are. But assume they are way better people than, you know, us. People like me that I know myself. Uh, And people like you. And you're great, but come on, you know. So these people are the real people. Or maybe you think that and you assume that these people are the weirdest people on the planet. Like really in on something that in your mind is just somewhat more uh, casual. But whatever your expectations were, the people that we met were just extremely normal. Obviously, they're very sincere. Obviously, they care a great deal about others. But outside of that, they're just still standing there making jokes, having conversation, being a little odd or awkward at times, just like the rest of us. And as we were talking to them, I I thought a lot about what their next experiences were going to be. And honestly, as they shared about what their experiences have been and what they're expecting, it, it seemed a lot like what we expect and experience here. You obviously hope for a lot. You're obviously planning to be very fruitful. If you were with us last week, we talked about being that fourth soil that produces 30, 60, 100 fold. We want to be fruitful. But they expected, had experienced and expected things that sounded really familiar to our context. They expected and experienced a lot of discouragement. Thinking about what they want to see happen and then just immediately going, this isn't going to work. Or this might work, but it won't work with me involved. I can't do this. They experience, they expect to experience a great deal of disconnection. Looking around at others and realizing that there is an otherness to them, but then also to themselves. Like as they stand in this new culture, they are the other. We were on a Zoom call for an hour plus on Wednesday with a couple. And their great concern was that they could develop real friendships with the people that they now lived around. I hope you understand why they would feel that. I hope you also understand how difficult that is. Like you grew up with people, but if you actually become new friends with people, you understand how hard, how rare maybe that is. They feel a deep discouragement, a disconnection, and what seems like defeat. But I just don't know Christians who look at their lives and say, wow, overwhelming fruit here. Like, Lord has to be really impressed. I clearly am one of the ones that is producing a hundredfold because <laughs> most, and by that I mean all, with some little, you know, asterisk, because I'm sure I don't, it's not everybody, but looks at their life and assumes that they are drastically underperforming for Jesus. I know these missionaries probably feel that way. They look out and they think, I want to do more than I'm doing. I want to have greater effect than I'm having. Man, and as you think about this picture, you can experience 
the desire that they have. Maybe it's secondhand, but you can experience their desire to overcome all of that. To get into these countries and to see those countries change. To see these massive population centers become massive churches, centers of praise to Jesus Christ. And yet, as you start to feel that thing that's really good, that the Lord wants you to feel, there's a danger in it. And I'm hoping that, Hope Church, that we will see the Lord really sow in us a great desire to multiply, a great desire to, like those missionaries, share God's love with lots of people. And we would see lots of those people respond. And that will be our responsibility to equip those people and not only baptize them, but to teach them all that God's commanded us. And so that they also share that gospel and it begins to multiply. I hope that we become very effective in that way. And as we talk about it more and more, I'm concerned about a big danger that's right in the heart of it. Our passage today is where Jesus sent out 72 of his disciples to go to all these different villages. This is during Jesus' ministry, so it's before he goes to the cross. But during Jesus' ministry, as he's an itinerant preacher walking around, he takes 72 of his disciples and he pairs them up and he sends them out to the towns he's about to go to to declare the kingdom of God. A little mini John the Baptist going out there making straight the path. And when they get back, they come back and they're actually really excited. And here's what they say. The 72 returned with joy. Joy. That's the thing that we're looking for, right? Our whole series here is on joy. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Oh. They felt joy. And then what is the joy? Well, the joy is that, Lord, even the demons are subject to the 72 in the name of Jesus. Jesus says to the 72, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. We'll talk about what that means. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this power. Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now, if you're just studying joy in the Gospel of Luke, you may read this passage and go, well, I don't know what that's about. And just move on to the next one. I mean, we were doing the, the, the parables. We were doing uh, the, his version of the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Plain. The, yeah, Joy! And then you get to this one, and he's talking about the devil and what is happening. Well, he's describing a very specific kind of danger that comes up as his followers follow him. And he's describing it with very real dangers that we undercut. So I want to observe some stuff, and then I want to dig in to exactly what that danger is and what our solution is. First, he is saying that Satan is real. We, we are contested. You know, we talk about going out to do the work of ministry and going out to be fruitful or be effective. And you say, well, all that matters is, like, surely we would be effective if, and you have this maybe... Blind optimism. Well, uh, be clear. We are opposed. We talked last week about hell. Why do we talk about hell? Well, because Jesus talks about hell. 
Well, this week I'm going to also say what Jesus said. Jesus is saying here that Satan is real. And he says, memorably, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. What does that mean? Well, Wayne Grudem, a very trustworthy Christian scholar, says that this is probably describing the time of Jesus' victory in the temptation in the wilderness. Right after he's baptized, Jesus comes out of the water. The Holy Spirit leads him out into the wilderness. For 40 days he fasts. And at the end of that 40 days, the enemy comes and tempts Jesus, famously. And yet, after those three temptations, Jesus stands. After those three temptations, though Adam and Eve fell and every other human sense has fallen, Jesus was perfect. And so... What are we saying when Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven? Is it describing this, the enemy coming to that temptation in the wilderness? He, here's Grudem, again. But Scripture doesn't explicitly specify that time. Enjoy the humility of allowing Scripture to help you understand Scripture. If the Lord doesn't describe in detail what's going on in some of these places, then you should be very suspect about somebody who comes to supply that detail. You start talking about the enemy, and very quickly you're going to have people that have way more thoughts about it than we have scripture on it. And, you know, ah, be careful, maybe. <laughs> you start talking about the end times and somebody's got like a flip chart, somebody's got something laminated, just, ah, not saying they're wrong, but, you know, Give it a little salt. Give it a little grain of salt there. Just be careful uh, with that. We want to let Scripture describe Scripture. And I think sometimes very smart people maybe build pictures that, yeah, let's just humble ourselves. Let's let Scripture describe Scripture. When he says he saw Satan fall like lightning, what he at least is saying in the context of this argument is that being Jesus, he does understand that Satan is contesting that ministry. And that Satan is quite the opposer. He's quite the opposition. He is somebody that we should be concerned about. Satan is violent. John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Most of my life, that rhymed. (laughs) I don't know if you've ever heard a southern accent. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but they don't actually rhyme. Steal, kill, and destroy. But I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. The enemy is trying to kill you. Think for a moment about the mother-in-law of the missionary who is watching her grandchild go to another country. Maybe it's racism and maybe it's xenophobia, but maybe she's just read the Bible And knows that the enemy has come to steal, kill, and destroy. You better come in the right name. Jesus is clear, and his his disciples are clear. In Jesus' name, they actually didn't have anything to fear from this enemy. In Jesus' name... But we get this crazy story in Acts 19 of other people who actually weren't followers of Jesus and yet they were exorcists or they were these itinerant, these people that would walk around casting out demons. And they started having some success in casting out demons in the name of Jesus, even though they weren't Jesus' followers. And they would say, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. 
It says seven in Acts 19, verse 14, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And I can just, uh, this one, just let your imagination run a little bit. Don't make a card out of it, but you know, let your imagination run a little bit. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on these seven sons mastered all of them, overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Why? They wanted the power, but they didn't really know the Lord. This guy is making a distinction. This evil spirit is making a distinction between Jesus, one who is Jesus's, namely Paul, and then these others who wanted something Different. Well, I think that's getting at the temptation I'm trying to describe for you that I think Christ is warning us of. If you're going to be called to this ministry, if you're going to be called to doing what Jesus is calling you to do, then you're called to step into power. You're called to step into something really beautiful and really hard. And as you do that, there's a temptation that's there. And the temptation is... That I, I want to do something with the Lord or I want to do something for the Lord. Now that little preposition is a big distinction. One is the dog that says, let me go where my master goes. The dog doesn't care what the job is. The dog cares about being close to the master. And the other says, I'm going to do ministry for the Lord. Well, who's that? Maybe that's a son. Maybe it's some enterprising new employee who's out there to make a name for the Lord or for himself. Do you start to see the distinction? Do you start to see the temptation? Listen, if you go about ministry, you're going to endure the same kinds of things that those missionaries are enduring, that we at Hope Church are enduring, because it's the ministry that Jesus also endured. Yeah, he's promising power, but he also modeled discouragement. It says in Matthew 17, I brought the, my son to your disciples, and they couldn't heal him. And Jesus answered. This guy, his son, had a big problem. He took him to the disciples. Disciples couldn't heal him. So he goes even further in and gets to Jesus. Jesus sees his disciples not doing what they're supposed to do. And he says, Oh, faithless and twisted generation. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. I'm not accusing Jesus of any sin here. I'm saying if you really do love people, and you watch as they're hurt and continue to be hurt and hurt others? Man, there's some discouragement there. In Jesus' ministry, we had disconnection. In John 6, he's preaching, he says something hard, and many of his disciples after this turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus says to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Why does he say that? Well, because in that moment, he's watching these that he loved cut themselves off, go away from him. Do you want to go away as well? Are you also disconnecting from me? And then what seems like defeat in Jesus' ministry. I don't go here lightly, but we should go here often. In Matthew 27, in the description of the crucifixion, 
It says, now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, and here Matthew, he transcribes the Aramaic for us. So you can hear what it sounded like. Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is it like to love other people? What is it like to intercede for other people? Well, it hurts. What is it like to be the eternally innocent Son of God and die on behalf of people? Well, that's an agony not to be compared with anything we've ever experienced. But it is described for us and it is yours to understand that Christ was defeated for you. So I'm listening to Jesus talk about this. Don't be, don't be overcome by the power that you feel in a moment of victory. And, I, and I, I don't know that I feel that temptation. I think I'm much more tempted to the discouragement side of things as I look at the ministry that God's called us to. But I know that it's out there. I know there are moments where I'm pretty excited about how things are going. And I know there are moments where I look at other people's ministry and I assume that they must really be excited about how God's doing things through them. While we were at that uh, IMB ministry, we were sitting listening to these different people talk. One group, the Sub-Saharan African group, was talking about how for centuries God has been sending people to Africa to share the gospel. But now, you know, they're kind of like wiping their lenses a little bit and saying, wait a minute, there are way more Christians in Africa than anywhere else. Why don't we just get out of the way and help a little bit the Africans to organize their own international mission board so that they can send missionaries all over the world. They're going to do amazing things. And so they help. There's this thing. It's called Africans on Mission. You can go to africansonmission.org. I'd encourage you to do it right now, actually. Do you have a phone? Africansonmission.org. Hey, I appreciate even some token movement. I said that in the first service, and it was like, they've never been more still than when I asked them to do something. Uh, I'm trying to get really intense or dramatic, and everybody's having a great time. But then I try to ask them to do something. It was corpse-like among the people. So I appreciate you at least even making a a movement. Africansonmission.org. Open it up. Look at it later. That's the new International Mission Board. It's not, but it will be. And they are going to identify and equip and then send cross-cultural missionaries from Africa to the world. That's got to feel like the 72 walking in with joy and saying, Man, Lord, even the demons are subject to us. Victory! We encountered person after person while we were there from North Carolina. And they were all from the same church. It's called the Summit Church. The guy that did my, uh, was my doctoral supervisor, he is their biblical counselor at the Summit Church. And that church, that one church, is sending more missionaries than any other state. I don't know if you process that for a second. That one church is sending more missionaries internationally than any other state. That's insane. I have to think that pastor feels victory. So studying this verse, 1017, I read about this email that went back and forth between two very influential pastors, one named Tim Keller, the other named John Piper. We quote from them somewhat regularly here. 
And Keller was about to die. He knew his cancer was terminal. And he's emailing with his friend, John Piper. And they're just thinking together. And both of those guys have ministries that have been wildly successful from anything that we can measure. And they were talking about this first. They were talking about the fact that though they have trampled on the enemy like scorpions and snakes, they have a deeper joy. And what is that deep joy? See, the temptation is to say that I'm going to allow myself to be defined. I'm going to have a deep joy that either comes from the power that I'm seeing God work through me or the power I desire for God to see through me. Maybe I'm in the discouragement camp. Maybe I'm in the victory camp. But in either case, I'm very tempted to be overcome by a desire to be effective. To have my joy, to have my person defined by how influential I can be. But that's not the right question. A guy named James K. Smith, Christian philosopher, he writes in a book called You Are What You Love. What do you want? It's, a, a, it's the fundamental question. Jesus asks this question of his errant disciple Peter. Do you love me? Now, that one quote is kind of putting together a lot of different stuff, but it's on page one of this book. And he's trying to say what the scriptures have clearly said and pastors and theologians for millennia have clearly said. You are what you want. What do you want is the fundamental question we can ask. And knowing the answer, we can ask it a different way. Peter, do you love me? So, Christian, let me ask, do you love him? Is the power for your ministry coming from your love of him or is the effectiveness that you either have or want your real desire? It's a temptation. You mean to prove it? Jesus, when he was being tempted, we referenced that momentarily. Uh, moments ago, when Jesus was being tempted, he had a couple temptations. Temptation one, Jesus has not eaten for 40 days. And so the enemy comes and says, turn these stones into bread. Now, if you've been fasting with us, you've been hungry and we get that. We understand that temptation because you felt that. You say, well, I haven't been fasting. You should. Listen, we did a month of prayer and fasting and we picked February. It's the shortest month. We met you as close as we could to wherever you are. Please, uh, just, you know, consider it. But if you've been fasting, you probably, maybe for the first time in a minute, felt real hunger. So you can understand why Jesus would be tempted to turn stones into bread. But look at this temptation. See if you can understand it. Again, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. I'll give it to you, man. You want to be effective? Imagine the missionary and they're on the airplane and they're flying into this unimaginably densely populated city on some other end of the world. And they see all of these faces that don't look like their face just walking by and thinking about the billions of people. And the enemy is looking at Jesus right now and saying, listen, I'm the problem. 
I'm the serpent constricting these people. I'm the lion with my mouth on their throat. And I'll give them to you. You can have all of them. If you'll fall down and worship me. And Jesus says, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Do you understand that temptation before you rush to the right answer? Do you feel the pull of that temptation? Because books overflow, written to pastors saying, hey, don't get burned out or hey, don't screw up your ministry. But what are they really saying? They're saying, hey, don't start doing something for Jesus and forget to do stuff with Jesus. You and I have that exact same temptation. And if you say, I don't know, Ben, this seems pretty like niche. I don't know how many people at Hope Church are really feeling that pull. Well, if that's the case, then weep with me that nobody here is trying to see other people come to Christ. Because as soon as you do, this temptation is going to be a very real part of your world. The temptation that Jesus reprimands in Revelation 2 when he's writing in this letter to the church in Ephesus and says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Wow! That is a class A pastor or missionary. Enduring patiently, bearing up under a bunch of evil, and they haven't even grown weary. <laughs> Every pastor I've met is weary. They've never even, they're not even growing weary. But what do they have? I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. That's our temptation, friends. It's the poison that's right in the heart of an effective missionary. So what are we going to do? Man, we're going to do what Jesus says. He says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Do you feel joy that Jesus died so that you don't have to? And you go, well, I'm still going to die, Ben. I know. But you're not going to die like Jesus did. In that moment on the cross, he drank the fullness of the wrath of God for your sin and mine. If you receive him, if you have trusted in him for that salvation, then that means that when you die, death has lost its sting. All it does is serve you by taking away the flesh and bringing you into the presence of the Lord. If you have felt that joy, does it now define you? Does a desire for him now define you? Long quote, John Piper. It is to be your most essential joy. That is the joy with the deepest roots. The joy that is most durable. The joy with the greatest satisfaction. The joy that sustains and shapes all joys. The joy that is unmistakable to those around us. The joy that cannot be suppressed but marks your ministry and your life. Let that joy be this, that your name is written in heaven. Let that joy be this, that you are saved. Now, I don't know if that's you or not. You may not be saved. Let's talk first about that. Do you understand that a holy God sees your sin and there's only one solution for that problem? Okay, if that is you, you've now received Jesus. Is he your most essential joy? And you say, well, kind of. Okay, well, let's change that. Here's what I want you to do. First, have the gospel pour into you all the time. Be regular at Hope Church. Duh. But also, 
plant yourself in Christian community. I love my community group. Why? Because they pour the gospel into me. As soon as we start talking, they start telling hard stories about their world, and they're also telling about how Jesus has continued to love and serve them through that time. About how they're just getting all mixed up, and they're, they're so happy that they're praying that they forget who they're praying to. Ooh. Oh, I still remember that. That was from a couple community groups ago. Sunday nights now, we're having our prayer time here. That means our community group has had to press pause for February. That was like the last one we met, and I still, I'm still sucking the sweetness out of that comment. You need people that are going to tell you the gospel. You also need to identify what are the other things that you love instead of the gospel. And here's what I mean. You're trying to go to sleep and you're letting your thoughts roam. And there's anxious thoughts. You're thinking about all the problems you got. But then there's just kind of fantasy thoughts. You're just imagining if your life was what you wanted it to be. What, what fills those fantasy thoughts? What's the version of you that you think would just be awesome to be? I don't know if it's specific things about people you would be with, but I, I imagine you imagine yourself in some crazy form of success. What does that look like? Because it can be a lot of things that are close to Jesus, but if it's not Jesus... When you let your brain just fantasize about shredding a guitar in front of billions of people or dunking a basketball when everybody goes crazy or, or is making some speech and everybody tearfully like applauds and gives you Oscars or, or whatever your little fantasy world version of you is. If it's not you with more of Jesus, that's what we're talking about. So how do you change in that? Well, you need to seek the Lord now. I would encourage you to just follow him where he goes. As you start loving people, you're going to see what it costs him to love you. Same thing with parenting. You want to be grateful for your parents as parents become a parent. Because as you watch your children just wreck your life, you'll realize what your parents endured for you. My mother, I'm 38 years old, and I'm, you know, bony or whatever, big fella. But my mother still is nervous when I walk around like things that are delicate. I'm 38 years old. She still would rather me have my hands in my pockets if I'm going to walk around things that are expensive because she just assumes I'm going to start freaking out and doing all kinds of stuff and knock the whole shelf over. Well, why does she think that? Because she saw me from ages can walk to recently and I might do that, right? Why do they tell you to hold your drink with two hands? Because they watched in thousands of restaurants and homes as you took something totally full and just let it fall and just spill out everywhere. You watch your kids do that and you understand why your parents feel that. You start loving other people and you're going to start to understand just a little bit of God's love for you. Just get out there and start feeling, start experiencing with him. So that, enduring with him, you might start to be overwhelmed and amazed by him. This is a clunky thing to end on, but I think it really is clear. One of the commentaries says, well, another commentarian notes that in Luke's writings, joy is a present experience shared to the degree of one's participation in events. When you're seeing the joy that Jesus is promising, you will enjoy that joy to the degree... That you participate in these events he's describing. 
Oh, joy is for you. The Lord's got it. He wants to give it. Do you have it? Let's pray. Lord and Heavenly Father, will you give us the grace to participate (laughs) in the event of being yours and being part of your church? To think about these 62 that are being sent, lifetime appointments in these global opportunities, Lord. We help us not to think of them as crazy people, as crazy impressive or crazy in the head. But instead, Father, will you help us to see how that's exactly what we're called to? It's exactly what we have the, um, not only opportunity, but command to do. And if you'll help us there, Lord, will you please be faithful also to teach us to abide in you. To know that what we desire most is not to be effective in this world. But what we desire most is, is you, Father. Please, Lord, let us learn from Christ and not fall to the temptation that he endured to choose power or influence over the worship of the Lord our God. Please, Father, heal your church. Don't let us be Ephesus. Don't let us lose our first love. Pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.